Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hey everybody, this is Shane Claiborne, and I'm so glad that you could listen in to the show. It's going to be a really special one because I've got three fantastic folks that uh, I've admired for a long time, and I don't even know if I've actually ever had three guests at one time, but the reason that we're having these three wonderful people is because they uh, are have written a new book together, so I'm going to introduce them, and then we'll talk about the, the, the book that they've created, but my dear friend Alexia Salvatierra. Uh, who is an amazing organizer. And I mean, you've got a pastoral heart, you got the prophetic fire, you have a, a story and a fire in your bones. She's written all kinds of stuff. Uh, her latest book she co-authored is Buried Seeds um, and really has created helpful language for many of us of faith-rooted organizing and faith-rooted organizations. Um, so, hey, good to see you, sister. Great to be here. <laughs> and the other two guests that we have, uh, uh, Robert Chow Romero has written some great books to make sure you you check out his other books. He, um, I mean, in, in this book, he's wearing a lot of different hats, but one of them is telling some of the history around immigration. And I should just men- mention that the book that we're going to be talking about that, that these three folks have written together is called God's Resistance, Mobilizing Faith to Defend Immigrants. So Robert, I've, I don't know that we've been together much, but I sure um, have read your stuff and uh, love your work, man. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Likewise. Great to be here. And uh, the, the so there, the other guest, the third guest that we have today is Brad Christerson. And Brad is a sociologist, professor of sociology at Biola, um, has uh, done a lot to kind of tie this book together and wrangle everybody in. The fourth author who uh, had another obligation today is Nancy Wang Yoon, who is a consultant on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and uh, was a wonderful part of this book. But but we got three. We got 75%. And this book is so important. And y'all, it comes out this month. So this is perfect timing to talk about it. I haven't read it yet, but I have a good sense of it because we've done a lot of organizing together and I've learned a ton from these folks. Um, but uh, immigration is one of those things that um, it can feel almost impossible. I mean, I think every new president, every new Congress, we kind of think, hey, this might be the moment where we see comprehensive immigration reform, where we see some changes happen. And yet uh, here we are again with policies that feel so stale and uh, excuses for inaction that are uh, beyond exhausting. And we know, you know, that um, welcoming foreigners, welcoming immigrants uh, is one of the most central themes of scripture from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Um, and and it's, it really goes to the heart of what our faith is about. So let me start with you, Alexia, because you've, you've written a lot and I know that you've got a lot of things that pull on your time. So you're sure not going to write a book unless you feel like it's really needed 
in the world. Mm-hmm. And I know you you would choose who you want to collaborate with well, but you all have been organizing in Southern California together. So tell us a little bit about um, how this you know book came to be. And uh, yeah, yeah, good to be together. Yeah, you know, we all know each other on the ground doing the work. Um, that's how we ended up coming together. Um, so, you know, we've all been doing the work for a while. And I, you know, Shane, that I've been doing it for 40 years, which is why they call me La Madrina. <laughs> that's a long time. 40 years in the desert. Um, everybody that knows you also says you must have started when you were like seven years old. Because you're you're <laughs> no, so young. No, yeah. not, your spirit, not. your spirit is young. Yeah. My spirit is young. My body, no, but my spirit, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I think we all felt like, um, the the reputation of the church, particularly the evangelical church, is just horrible right now around this issue. That people just don't know that some of the most powerful work that's been done to um, defend immigrants against injustice has been done by people of faith, has been done particularly by people of vibrant faith. Mm. So people don't know that, and that's bad for two groups of people. That's very bad for young actors who can be turned away from Christ because of that, because they think of the church as a place that doesn't love those who most need our love. Um, and and then people in the church who might actually, you know, read the words of Jesus and know that we're called to love the stranger, but be very confused by the fact that the people around them seem to be calling for the opposite. Mm-hmm. So they feel very alone and they shut up. And shutting up is never a very good thing for the church to do, um, particularly when there's a truth that's important for us to say and to live. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would love to hear some of how, you know, from my brothers, how how they also, why they also thought it was this important. Yeah, Robert, talk talk a little bit. I mean, you're a historian, among other things. Yeah, you kind of, you all like blur the lines a little bit, because I know you're all theologians and sociologists, but, you know, you kind of did some of the history on this. And that's a lot of your your work that you're known for is around telling some of those histories. Uh, I, I just watched a little bit of your podcast with Jamar Tisby, who's a dear friend and brother, you know, and so um, tell us a little bit, you know, like what you brought to this and why you you thought this book's, you know, really important and could help people out. Yeah, for sure. So the book was, well, first of all, it was very much like Alexia said, came out of our organizing together. And um, and then I'm a professor at UCLA of Chicano Studies. So it's all kind of like, it was very kind of organic, but I'm really passionate about letting the world know that Latinos and Latinos, Hispanics have been doing this work of justice for centuries. Like that's my thing, right? Like um, there is a history of, of the Brown Church in which we've challenged colonialism, we've challenged slavery in Latin America, we've challenged dictatorships, we've been, we've been in this a long time, but there's so many people that don't know, they're not familiar with that history, they're not familiar with the community cultural wealth of the Latino community. Um, and, with, and particularly when it comes to um, the immigrant rights movement, a lot of times people don't even know that Hispanics have been involved in that. So people have called the sanctuary movement, some people have called it an immigrant movement without immigrant leaders. <laughs> and like that just gets me so mad because it's not true. <laughs> um, it, in, in the United States alone, we've been doing this work for, gosh, about a hundred years and organizing against Jim Crow segregation and organizing for immigrant rights. And then and Alexia tells stories in the book about um, her involvement in the first sanctuary movement and the second sanctuary movement and these years. So that's what gets me going. It's like, mm-hmm. we've, we've been in this game. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I think uh, the, the, the when I think of the sociology of this, Brad, you know, there's that old saying that we got to read the Bible.
Bible in one hand, but the newspaper in the other. And the newspaper is pretty heavy these days. And it, and and yeah, like I think those of us that do love the Bible mm-hmm. and look at it and see how um, we're to welcome the stranger as if they were our own flesh and blood. You know, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. Like it's kind of a no brainer, but part of what people end up doing is kind of dividing the personal compassion. Like, yeah, you know, we could, we should care about immigrants in our own lives. If you meet someone who's homeless, like you should be, have compassion for them, but it, it doesn't always translate into getting involved in some of the policy changes. And um, there's, there's a resistance there. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. You can talk about whatever you want, but <laughs> I studied sociology too. That was oh, a major. So as I look awesome. at this, I, I, it boggles my mind that this is, seems to be such a complicated issue because it, it seems so crystal clear in scripture and it doesn't seem like it should be an issue of the left or right, but really is an issue of right and wrong. And I, it, it just blows the mind, but go ahead, Brad. Yeah. Well, you studied under one of my heroes, Tony Campolo. So uh, that, that's a good legacy there, but uh, yeah. Um, I, I just want to reiterate what you just said. I, I know so many uh, Christian believers that are just some of the individually, some of the kindest people I've ever met. And they give you the shirt off their back if you ask it, them to. And they're very much involved in being personally giving, but they're also um, supporting some pretty horrific policies and systems. And there's this disconnect. And, and so I think... Uh, as sociologists, as Christian sociologists in particular, we um, we want to make that connection and show how, you know what, we may be personally living out some or a lot of things Jesus is saying, but we're, we're actually letting our institutions do our sinning for us. Mm. Institutions are um, in some ways more harmful and in a lot of ways more powerful. And so, uh, and that's the place where the church is today. That, and that's why we look so bad because, you know, we might, we might be nice people, but we're, uh, as a movement, especially white evangelists, Evangelicalism. We're supporting a lot of systems and policies that are really, really harming and and destroying people's lives. So, mm. so yeah, so it's been a passion of mine to try to make that connection and and show to be to be followers of Jesus. We got to talk about both our, our personal interactions with folks, but also politics and system. Yeah, hey, I wanted to just share a little story just that came up for me when Brad was saying that. Um, I've spoken in a lot of churches uh, over the years of my life about these questions and about these people. And it's really common that uh, in the interaction with the church, that there's people standing up and just parroting the kind of restrictive anti-immigrant language that they've heard. And then they will literally walk up to me afterwards and say, can you do anything for my maid? I have this wonderful maid and, Hmm. you know, she's been taking care of my kids and she's been cleaning our house and I just want to help her get papers. And I have to say, well, you know what? This, this line, what you've been saying has held in place a system that makes that impossible. You know that? Mm, mm, (laughs) You you can't get your maid papers. It's not possible. And she could be deported any day. And your children would be really sad about that, Mm, you know, because mm. the system is, is um, most people know it's ineffective. If you get a step closer, you know, it's unjust. And if you get a step closer than that, you know, it's inhumane. But if you're away, if you're sufficiently removed from the system, you just don't know that. Yeah. And I've heard you say, Alexia, that, uh, you know, privilege is being able to decide which issues we care about and which ones we yeah. don't. Choose your and, burdens. Privilege means that you can choose your burdens. Whereas, you know, if you're not born in this country, but you have connections here that call you here, then uh, you are suffering under the burden of a broken system. And we have to bear one another's burdens and thus, thus fulfill the law of Christ. Yeah. Hey, if y'all are just tuning in, um, it, this is a special show. You're hearing a lot of different voices 
cases. And that's because uh, these four folks, I've got three of them on the show today, four folks have written a new book called God's Resistance, actually comes out this month in November. God's Resistance, Mobilizing Faith to Defend Immigrants. So you've been hearing from Alexia Salvatierra, Robert Chow Romero, and Brad Christerson um, today. And um, Robert, I want to come back to you because um, it is, it is um, you know, the, the title is God's Resistance. So we must be resisting something. There's some obstacles to why uh, we haven't seen some um, changes. I mean, even things that seem like they should be no-brainers, like um, uh, for DACA recipients, young immigrants in our family, you know, folks that are listening outside the country may not know, you know, we've got some young folks that were um, born here in the U.S. Um, that um, still don't have a path to citizenship. And some of them have never even been to or lived in the countries where their parents came from. And there's, I mean, so many layers of this that, um, I mean, we've, we've sent people to the moon, like we, <laughs> we can figure this out, you know, like we sure uh, know how to mobilize our resources and expertise when it comes to de- designing weapons of war. So it seems like we could do a lot better with uh, uh, some of the mobilizing for compassion. So what, what do you see as some of the, the, the obstacles, Robert? It's totally political, right? Um, the vast, I don't have the exact numbers on me, but the majority of, of Americans support doing something to help young people who, who, who came here as, as young kids, but don't have papers. Like it's, it's a strong level of support, but, but like Alexia says, the people that speak up the most are, are anti-immigrant folks. So even if there's good legislation on the line and most people support it, um, the, the loudest people are the anti-immigrants and they'll call their legislators, you know, 20 to one. Right. And Alexia talks about, you know, it's like, there's just not the, the passion, you know, to bring change. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd love to hear. I know Alexia has seen this. And we talk about this in the book. Like there was a moment in the mid 2000s where there was actually very strong evangelical support for change. And then something happened. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I want to just um, build on what Robert just said about when you do polls, that most people want an uh, immigration system that is just and fair and humane. And there's actually, a, there are a few differences between what people want, but there's broad consensus. Um, but the problem is that they're not passionate about it because it's not about them. But mm. what is the one institution in our society that's mandated to be passionate yeah. about people, all people? And then immigrants on our networks often don't do anything, not because we lack passion, but because we lack hope. We don't think mm. we have any capacity. And it's when the church is the church, when we're the body of Christ, when immigrant and non-immigrant believers come together, that non-immigrants get passion because we realize that it is about us. And immigrants get hope because we realize that us are all working together, mm, right? Mm, so, yeah. um, and we had a we had a moment, you know, where the evangelical immigration table went public in 2012, and two days later, and the evangelical immigration table at that point was the broadest cross section of evangelicals working on a social justice issue since abolition. We went public, and two days later, Obama declared DACA, and by 2013, we actually passed the um, Senate on a good, a fairly good immigration bill. But when it got to the House, the speaker wouldn't bring it to the floor because right. it wasn't to the advantage of his party to solve the problem. Yeah. Oh, Lord have mercy. And, and, you know, I mean, sadly, some of this feels really familiar, you know, because um, we're organizing on a lot of different fronts. But one of those that I put a lot of passion and energy into is um, gun violence, right? And and like 90% of Americans want to see some common sense um, laws on guns, like, you know, banning uh, assault rifles or, you know, like not having domestic abusers be able to acquire weapons, things like that. And yet there's a handful of gun extremists that seem to hold the country hostage. And it does 
kind of feel like we're we're in a bit of a democratic crisis <laughs> in general right now. But Brad, you're a sociologist. Like I also, I, I sure want to, I want to like, I, I'm a person of faith and of hope. So I know that we, we know that things can change, um, but I'd love to hear you share anything of like, and this is a story about what's working and what has a possibility to scale and work at, uh, you know, in, in new ways if we just give it more energy. So do you want to say a word about uh, what you've seen work and what we, we can learn from? Because as you're organizing in Southern California, it is kind of a microcosm to the rest of the country. And I'm sure you've had some successes and some not so much, not so successful things, but where have you seen sort of the spirit move and work? Ah, well, I have to say when you're looking at it from 30,000 feet as a sociologist, sometimes it can get really hopeless uh, because mm. of what uh, Robert and Alexia said, uh, but the hope is on the ground. And so for me, um, I got involved in this movement after the 2016 election. Um, the, you know, on Tuesday, uh, President Trump was elected and on, I believe it was a Saturday or a Sunday, the following Sunday, those of us who were just had the sense of dread that something was, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to get harmed, particularly uh, marginalized people and, and immigrants. Um, yeah, I got involved with these folks and um, it was life changing mm-hmm. for me because I'm used to just sort of an- analyzing and critiquing and looking at data. But there's something when you actually experience it on the ground where you see uh, people of faith standing out in front of an uh, ICE headquarters in downtown Los Angeles praying for the, the Holy Spirit to release people, uh, release the, the prisoners and seeing people on hunger strikes and then seeing actual victories come out of that. You know, we, we saw some victories that were small. Uh, you know, the, the the policies didn't get changed, but we saw people get released. We saw uh, mm-hmm. people in Congress change their minds on particular smallish issues. And um, yeah, I experienced the power of God in a way that I, I never have before. And mm-hmm. which is why I wanted to do this book to, to shed light in these stories, because yeah, it can be pretty hopeless when you've got a newspaper in one hand and the Bible on the other. But when you're actually on the ground in, in the grassroots uh, and you see God working, um, yeah, you start to believe that, you know, there w- w- with God's on our side, there's nothing we can't do. Yeah. I mean, I think of the times that I've been down, you know, along the border, which, um, uh, you know, every chance I can to see things happening that are hopeful and beautiful, I want to see them even in the middle of the funk and the struggle. But I think of, you know, Alma Ruth and the Practicing Mercy. I think of Dora Rodriguez from El Salvador and all these like missions and so many of them. Now, you know, not all of them. I'm not going to say that we have a, an, an exclusive right to compassion and justice, but like so many of them are fueled by their faith, right, Alexia? Like that, I mean, it, it is it is a human compassion thing, but there's also a theological framework and there's like a spiritual element to what we do that is beyond just the sociology and the, the, the justice issues, right? I want to say, you know, I was teaching on trauma with a psychologist we are co-teaching and and typical trauma theory they talk about how the first step has to be safety Mm. and i kept thinking what what not for asylum seekers (laughs) There, there isn't any safety for them and then i realized that the experience of being in the struggle and it, which is an experience of agency, an experience of God's support, and the support of the Holy Spirit, and the support of brothers and sisters, that that's healing, mm-hmm. that 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 gives hope, and that hope brings healing to trauma. Um, so, you know, there is this alternative to security, when security just is impossible. Mm-hmm. Safety is impossible, security is impossible, 
but in the darkness, the light shines and is not overcome. When when there's that sense of the resurrected, you know, Desmond Tutu said that we're resurrection people. Mm. And I think that's what you experience in the struggle when you're in the struggle as followers of Christ together. Mm-hmm. When, when I think of um, uh, part of what it means to be Christian, I, I, I often think of Mother Teresa, who um, actually, I know people can't see this because it's a podcast, but I have a little thing that Mother Teresa gave me um, on my desk here in a book that she signed. And she's very, uh, she was very formative for me. But one of the things that she said is sometimes our biggest problem is that the circle we've drawn around our family is too small. And mm-hmm. that's what it seems like a lot of xenophobia or even just like, you know, protection of our own, our own people, nationalism, all that is just when we, we have too narrow of a view of compassion and love and family. And part of what's like fundamentally Christian, right? Is this idea that we're to be born again, that if someone's suffering on the other side of a wall or border, like that's still our family. That's that's our grandmother, our, our daughter, right? Like uh, it, it should have that much urgency to it. Um, so, you know, Robert, as you're, as you're like looking at this and you're, you're looking at like what can move people's hearts. Um, I, I, I've heard you talk about the, the kind of racial reckoning that we're in the middle of. And it seems like on a lot of these issues, a part of this is about the changing demographics of America and sort of a, a white fragility or a white nostalgia of how things used to be, a wrangling for power um, and, um, you know, even make America great again. Uh, it's, it's not even really coded for, you know, make America white again. And let's get go back rather than forward together as a nation. So uh, I, I don't know if you want to say much about that. I, I find that both like challenging, but also really hopeful because young people are, they are not stuck in the old ways and in all, all the, these like kind of flawed theologies and um, like imposed paralysis that we kind of put on ourselves. Hope hope is in, hope is alive and well in the immigrant community and in, in immigrant communities. If you look mm. at the data, unfortunately, the church is tanking in traditional white yeah. spaces where people are either super far left politically or super far right. It doesn't matter, right? And, and But the church is thriving in the global south. It's thriving in African immigrant churches, Chinese immigrant churches, Latino immigrant churches. And that's hopeful to me because mm. in the decades to come, the face of Christianity is going to continue to change. And I remember, you know, someone telling me too, that like most of the most Christian activists of like the 70s and 80s, um, based upon their anecdotal experience that they knew, they didn't come out with their faith thriving. Mm. And then I remember asked, I asked Alexia, like, what's the difference? Like, what's the difference? And she said, um, those of us who, who maintain close connections to the actual immigrant community, we made it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thanks be to God. Well, I also think of, of Alexia, when you when you talk about Corinthians and you you uh, use that powerful verse of how we're all one body with many parts and the parts of the body that have been dishonored or given special honor, that that's a call, as you as you say, of God's uh, affirmative action. <laughs> and right. you know, so other traditions would be... call that preferential treatment of the poor. Um, what I really want to say is that in essence, what we're calling people to in this book is simple, that what we're talking about in terms of compassion and hope and um, the full use of all the strategic wisdom that we've been given mm. for God's cause, mm-hmm. that we think that that reading the book will encourage you with the details. You know, we don't have time right now to give you all the details, but we want to make sure that you get the hear the call. Sure. 
check it out, y'all. This is perfect timing for the release of God's resistance, mobilizing faith to defend immigrants. And this is not just a U.S. issue. This is a struggle all over the world where people are operating out of fear of others, this kind of myth of scarcity, all that stuff. So check the book out and let's build a better world where we do welcome one another as family. If, if you're just tuning in, we've been talking with Alexia Salvatierra, Robert Chow Romero, and Brad Christensen about their book, God's Resistance. And uh, Brad, we'll come back to you, man. Tell us what, what else you want to, what's on your heart, man. Explore the punchline of the book a little bit, I guess, is that, um, yeah, a lot of people aren't aware that faith is is a really central part of this movement for immigrant rights, but also other movements for justice. And so in the book, we try to explain what what contribution does faith uniquely uh, bring to the table in these, these movements for justice. And uh, we basically found three things that faith inspires people uh, to live into a higher moral vision uh, of the this beloved community or the kingdom of God. And that mm. keeps people going when other people just can't make it anymore. They get too discouraged. It, it keeps people uh, inspired. Um, it all The faith also connects people. It, it acts as a bridge to connect people that wouldn't normally interact together or be connected. So immigrants and non-immigrants, activists, politicians, uh, yeah, lay people and uh, social activists. It, it brings connections that's really crucial for a social movement. And then lastly, uh, it empowers people, particularly on the margins. And this, I think this is a big contribution of our book, like Alexi and Robert said, is showing that this is a movement led by uh, the folks affected by this themselves, the immigrants. Mm -hmm. And when you're facing down uh, this huge system, you know, the American government with all its power and all of its uh, violence and that faith gives you the power to think, hey, I can stand against it. Um, And we're dealing with a fourth force more powerful than the U.S. government. And um, it's really hard to underestimate how powerful that is in in mobilizing a movement. Mm, Yeah. Robert, I I know like it's easy to, as we have this conversation, to feel like we're having the same conversation that we were having like five years ago or 10 years ago, you know, arguing Deuteronomy and Matthew 25 and Hebrew says you're entertaining angels. Uh, But, you know, um, things can change, but tell us where we're at right now. You know, as you look at the conversation, um, the movement happening in our country and, and really the crisis of compassion that is happening on on the border. Um, t- give us a little sense of what you how you read this moment. I'm just still trying to figure it out, to be honest. Right? Like I remember, like last week, I was traveling in Cleveland, Ohio, and a couple of weeks before that in Indianapolis. And there's all these Latinos there. I'm like, oh my gosh, what are all these sisters and brothers from Cuba and from Venezuela? And they're going to Indianapolis. They're going to Cleveland, Ohio. And I was trying to wrap my brain around that. And as I talked with folks, like they were saying, well, like a lot of the major cities like LA and places like that, New York, they're saturated. The job market is mm. saturated. So lots of folks are going, right? And and, and I remember just, you know, talking with with a, an hermana at, at, at one of the churches and she was like, oh yeah, like, you know, I'm supposed to give this talk or whatever. And she's like, my job today is to clean out, clean out my family room and find a bed because this family of five is coming to stay in my house tonight. Mm. Like, And so even though like the, 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 the origins of the people coming now might be a little different, as Christians, we're called to serve just the same, even if I don't, even if we don't understand what's happening, right? Mm, mm. I, I want to say a couple things to this actually also. Um, I think that the immigration crisis gets focused on the border. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that there are more people here. If we talk just about undocumented people, there are more people here who have overstayed visas than people who have crossed the border. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that because the focus is on the border because it awakens our territorial instincts. But, you know, I remember, Shane, you know that I spent a number of years sort of crisscrossing. I 
can't, the country I call myself Juana Appleseed. I was teaching and training people in how to do faith-rooted organizing. And I was just go anywhere that somebody would give me a bed, right? Um, and I kept being amazed as somebody who was born and raised in Los Angeles. I just kept being amazed by acres and acres of empty, fertile land mm-hmm. wherever you looked, like the heartland of this country. And I remember that St. Louis at a certain point put a call out to refugees, please come to St. Louis. We're losing our population. Our population is going to the big cities on the coast. And we desperately need people, particularly young people and immigrants skew young and people to start small businesses and immigrants have a much higher rate of starting small businesses. Mm. So this territorial impulse really ignores that immigrants can be bearers of gifts that are actually needed gifts, mm. not just luxuries. Um, so I, I, I do also want to say that one of our strategies that you'll read about in the book um, is getting people together in in joint ministry who are immigrant and non-immigrant. Because when this stays on a 30,000 foot level, wherever people are coming from, when what happens is that people become captive of the emotions underneath the concepts, which are often emotions of fear and threat and outrage. Um, but when you actually do ministry on the ground side by side, you mm. begin to have real relationships with real people and to trust each other. And yeah. then in the context of that trust that happens among peers mm. that, you know, and I'm sure Brad could talk about social contact theory in this, you know, how that this relationship among peers is really what transforms people. So when you're in joint ministry together and you're all responding to children in a detention center, you know, and that what begins to happen is, is the immigrant begins to share the story to the non-immigrant and the mm. non-immigrant and it's like, really? That's crazy. <laughs> we have to do something about that. So I don't experience people as closed off and unwilling to learn. I just experience people as not in context that that create learning. Sometimes it's helpful for me. That was real helpful, Alexia. Sometimes it's um, I'm, I, I'm kind of uh, shaken when I go to another country where there's like things that are actually happening <laughs> that, that are really beautiful. You know, I mean, I, like I was traveling all over the UK in homes that had um, immigrants from all kinds of different countries that they had created a hospitality network of Christian families that were welcoming immigrants in their homes. And some of that was temporary. They had a whole like job training thing and English, English, if you needed it, you know, as a like resource. And I mean, just all kinds of stuff. When I was in Canada, um, interestingly enough, when I was in Canada, they, they called immigrants new arrival, right? So it was just a beautiful way of saying these are our newest, newest neighbors, you know? And one of the guys that was at this conference I was speaking at was from Iran. Rock. He was a priest and we he just was going to show me the town. So he took me out for the day and we're walking around uh, wherever we were in Canada. But then he started telling me his own backdrop. And I mean, by the end of it, like we're in tears. I'm We're hugging each other, like praying together. He had lived through unfathomable. I mean, they had shot through his car. Um, and I mean, he had all these miracle stories of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, and then people said we had to end church, but the church doubled in size in the middle of the war. You know I mean? And now he's a citizen in Canada. And I'm like, this guy's not even like he's he's he would be easy for people to not recognize. I mean, he was actually just a panelist, and I was like, brother, you got to do the keynote. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll be on the panel or do dishes or something. But uh, yeah, but anyway, it's just like I think sometimes we just miss the opportunity of um, of trying things and doing it together and recognizing the wealth of the people that might be sitting right next to us. Um, Brad, you want to jump into that, man? Yeah, no, the 
That's absolutely right. And, you know, some of the stories of, of pastors actually um, that have been detained here in Los Angeles uh, by ICE, um, a lot of the movement um, really got momentum when pastors started getting uh, detained and not people come across the border, but people who are here have been here for years. And one story um, that really we talk about in the book, it's the story of Pastor Noe Carillas. And he, um, you know, he escaped. He was kidnapped in Guatemala as a young child and uh, with a group of guerrillas and somehow he escaped that and his family had moved up here and he um, somehow escaped and got to his family and that's his backstory and then he lived here for a lot of years became a a Christian now he's a and married a a U.S. citizen wife and now he's a a Pentecostal pastor in L.A. and um, but because of his migration situation uh, once Trump got elected he was under threat and um, he ended up getting detained and almost got if we wouldn't have rallied around him, he would have gotten deported, even though he had uh, U.S. citizen kids and and a U.S. citizen wife, and he's a pastor and also a business owner. And so that story was so powerful. And his life is just sort of like, a, you know, you could make a movie out of it. And um, yeah, we people don't realize the stories of folks that are right in our midst. And once that story got a spotlight shown on it, it really ignited the movement. And because mm. people realized you know, it, it just showed the injustice of, of the way the laws were being enforced. And so, yeah, we need to pay attention to the folks just right around the corner because they've got stories that that if if we magnify them and lift them up, um, we'll have a, a huge effect on the world around it. Mm, so good. I'm going to give you all each a chance to give a final word. But before we go, I wanted to um, at least mention, you know, something that's heavy on so many of our hearts, the escalating violence um, uh, in the Middle East and particularly the the uh, bombing and ground war and the, the, the loss of life in Gaza. Um, and it, it does seem like connected to immigration that when the church is persecuted or they're suffering other places, we often have some compassion in the church, especially the traditional evangelical church. Like uh, we send missionaries, we send aid. And yet when Syrian refugees want to come here or when Palestinian refugees want to escape what's happening, you know, I mean, um, we're not always uh, compassionate um, in welcoming our homes in our country to folks that are escaping like an un- imaginable violence. So um, as you look at, you know, what's happening in Gaza right now, I know at Red Letter Christians, we've been actively um, um, trying to call for a, de- you know, a, a ceasefire and an end to the violence to call out hate as an enemy of God, no matter whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia and to differentiate between the, you know, state of Israel and the people of Israel and Hamas and the people of Gaza. And so, um, but there's, you know, right now, as we're recording this anyway, like 200 kids that are losing their lives every day in Gaza. It's uh, uh, half the population is under the age of 15 in Gaza. Um, so as we think of how this connects, even to the similar principalities and powers that are at work, um, you know, on immigration. Do you have any thoughts or hopes or ideas for for what we can do right now? You know, I often remember, I think we'll each get a minute, right, to say something. Um, I remember the interaction between Jesus and Peter when Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die and he's going to die horribly. Mm. And Peter says, you know, and and, and he, Peter's like, what, 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 what? No, no, no. 
<laughs> like what, what, what? And um, and then Jesus says, you know, I mean, and he's talked about eating my body and drinking my blood, and, and like everybody wants to leave, right? And he says to Peter, "You're going to leave me too." Mm. And Peter says, "Where would I go? You have the words of life." And I think that the impulse when we when we hear about the horrible things going on in the world that are overwhelming and so powerful, I think the impulse is to run away. I think that's the normal human impulse. Mm. But to know that to follow Christ is life and to follow Christ is to follow him carrying the cross through the cross to the resurrection. Mm. That where where would we go? There's no real escape, right? But the only the only the only place to find any healing in the midst of this pain is in yeah. the midst of it. And in the midst of it following the one who went through the cross to the resurrection. So I, I think that um, we all have to figure out what that means in our particular context and you know how much we can lament and still live our daily lives, how much we can give and still be able to take care of our families. But I, I think that we have to get that, that there's nowhere else to go. That yeah. when everyone runs away, Jesus runs in. Mm, and that on. if we want to follow him, we got to do the same. Robert, if we, I, I think I can hear the organ, you know, starting in the background there, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Alexi, before but before we, I want to let, you know, each, each of these guys have a final word too. But, you, you know, before we started the show, you were talking about how um, as people of faith, we have a unique um, perspective on things that might seem impossible, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we have a God that's kind of master in the impossible. And sometimes you can think that this is all just strategic. It's all just our own work and we've got to maneuver people or persuade them. And there's a part of organizing that is that, but there's also a hand at work at all this that beyond us. And I know I, I know you pretty well for a lot of years, your Pentecostal self. And if you want to say anything about the role that faith you know, plays for you and, and what feel like impossible times. And I think for our Palestinian friends, I'm going to be on the phone with many of them on Saturday, um, Palestinian Christian leaders and um and and for folks that are just waiting and hoping for that change that they want to see in this country as immigrants or advocates of immigrants um and, you know these are some heavy times so yeah yeah 400 years in Egypt right what mm. were those 400 years like i mean i think that that to be a christian is to have hope in hopeless places mm. to be a christian is to love after loss to choose to love after loss and to ask for the capacity to love after loss it's not like we can do it by willpower mm. it comes from the holy spirit Ooh, Brad, we can come to you and then uh robert and, and by the way feel free to mention any way that people can keep up with you you know because after a one hour show or you know like this uh folks may want more and and just to remind everybody the book um that that i don't know is kind of our excuse for getting together but uh, is god's resistance but um these these wonderful friends are much more than a book but it does capture their some of their fresh ideas so check out god's resistance coming out in, in this month um but brad will come to you and then robert for a closing word bro yeah i think you know the connection for me between what's going on in Gaza and what's going on in our society and at the border is just the capacity that we need to develop to see other people as part of our family, like we've been talking about. I, I remember when uh, 9-11 happened and, you know, all the TV coverage uh, of just all the horrors. And I remember seeing a little girl that looked a lot like my daughter, who was four at the time, just crying in the midst of all this chaos and, and destruction around her. And I just started bawling because I, I connected with that. Um, well, a lot of us felt that after 9-11, but then somehow we didn't make that connection uh, to Afghani and Iraqi 
children that were the same age as our kids. And, and um, I see that when we go to the border, we saw, you know, families, uh, parents trying to reconnect with their kids. That's one of the, the, the pro actions we went to trying to reunite families and um, yeah, it, to, to be able to feel what that must be like. And so I, I, for some reason we're wired to uh, feel that when it's our own family or people that look like us, but not other people. And we're, we're not struck the same way. And, and that's somehow uh, God needs, we need to look to God to develop that, that empathy in us where we're all family and, mm -hmm. and there's no us and them. There's only us. And um, how you do that, I have no idea, but I, I think that's, that's the problem that we see because we're not seeing certain kids as our kids. Mm -hmm. Such a good word. Or I was even thinking. seeing them as enemies. I mean, I'm going to just throw yeah. in that. I remember that I was speaking in a church and we were talking about um, Muslim refugees. You know, you were talking earlier about the people coming could be Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. And and there was a man who stood up and said, you know, I don't want Muslims in my country. They're dangerous. You know, even though, in fact, like you said, he'd been paid for people to do missions in Muslim countries, I'm sure. But he was like, I don't want Muslims in my country. They're dangerous. And my co-presenter uh, spent some time trying to convince him that Muslims weren't dangerous. And and I all I could think of is what Jesus said about loving our enemies, mm. is that the point is not to convince people that Muslims are not dangerous, that Jesus's call is that even if somebody is dangerous. Mm. Now, children are not dangerous, right? And, and this war in Gaza and the immigration situation, that was the crisis. Really, the people who are most strongly hit by these things are all children, mm. who are certainly not our enemies. But sometimes we don't, we don't see children as our own because we're so nervous about our enemies. Mm. And I, I think that we just have to face those crazy words of Jesus, right? To love our enemies. And Shayna, mm. I know you've done a lot of that in your life. So you know the, the fruits of it, the transforming fruits of stepping into that crazy place of loving your enemies. Yeah, thanks, Alexia. Uh, you know, as you were sharing that, one of the thoughts that just jumped in my head was, um, I'm aware that some of our listeners were not alive in 2003 when the bombing of Iraq happened, but, you know, a group of us were over there. And um, I mean, we saw some of the hardest things that we've ever seen, but I also saw some of the deepest, most resilient faith of Christian Iraqis um, and others, you know, Syrian, other other Christians from all over the Middle East. Um, but one of them, we were driving by the U.S. military base um, in Iraq. And he said, do you know what we would call that in Arabic? And I said, no. And he said, we would call it Al-Qaeda. And I was like, ooh, I was thinking like that, you know, that was a bad joke. And he's like, no, no, no. It, that's that Al-Qaeda means the base. And he's like, so literally the same word that we would use for the U.S. military base is the same word that the U.S. uses for um, the terrorists. And he said, at the end of the day, the people have suffered from Al-Qaeda in many different forms. And he mm -hmm. said, when your baby is dead, it almost doesn't matter who killed your child. It just feels like a terrorist did it. And he said, that's kind of what we suffered, you know? And I, I thought also of like the beauty in all of that is that there were people who made that connection too, that the, these are families just like ours. And one of the things that happened is during the Iraq war, people began wearing like little buttons that said, I have family in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And it was to create conversations, right? Where people would say, oh, really, you have family in Iraq? And I mean, it, it created that curiosity. And then they would say, well, you know, not biological family, but I, I mean, maybe some of them did, but you know, they were wearing the badge, the, the button so that people, it would tear down that idea of us and them, right? And create a conversation. So uh, maybe we need to uh, wear some buttons today that say, yeah, I've got family in Gaza or something, but uh, yeah. And I have family at the border. Yeah. And I absolutely. actually do, but you know, there's lots of us that don't. I mean, I'd love to see Brad wear a, a little button saying I have family at the border. That's yeah. a great idea. Heck 
Yeah. yeah. Robert, you want to send us out, man? And then, you know, each of you, if you want to tell people how to continue to follow your work, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, yeah. you know, if there's blogs or websites or socials, but it's been a great conversation. And Robert, we'll give you the last word unless you want to tell people how to follow you. Sure. I'd say the borders are about cont- contested identities, contested ethnic identities, religious identities, whether it's the U.S. border, whether mm-hmm. it's, it's Palestine. And I think it's, but as followers of Jesus, we're supposed, we're called to just like jump in and care and love and, and, and blur those borders, blur those um, political identities that, that divide us, ethnic identities. And I think it's all too easy in, in the United States, at least, to project those borders upon other places. Mm. And and so I think that our call is to just jump in there and care and love regardless of, of, of those of those borders and those contested identities. Mm. Mm. So I'll say where they can find me, but I'm at Fuller Theological Seminary. At 67 years of age, I'm in my tercera edad, which is my third age, which is where I try to teach and mentor and support other people to go out there and do what I've spent my life doing. So if you're interested in a theological education, we have a master's in justice and advocacy, along with all the more traditional ones, and we have a master's in Spanish too. So uh, you can go back and forth and take classes in English and classes in Spanish if you're bilingual, but you sort of want to do that exploration. Mm. So um, yeah, that's where you can find me at Fuller Centro awesome. Latino. Brad or Robert, you want any way people can follow you, keep up with you? I'm an old guy, so I'm only on Facebook pretty much. But um, yeah, look me up. Love to hear from you. Awesome. I'm at the I'm at the usual social media places. Just look me up by name, Robert Chow Romero. Thanks, bro. Well, it's been a powerful hour together, y'all. Thanks for listening in. And please do grab a copy of God's Resistance, but also follow these wonderful friends, Robert Chow Romero, Brad Christensen, and Alexia Salvatierra. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.